Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. We do welcome you here to Central Campus, as well as those of you who are joining us online, and those of you who are meeting together at one of our other regional campuses in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, in South Calgary, and also in Crowfoot in Northwest Calgary. Some time ago, a young man who was exploring the Christian faith uh, came to one of our services, and after the service approached me and said, I don't get it. Why do Christians get together like this and sing songs? I mean, what purpose does it serve? He said, I can see the value of, you know, hearing a talk like the one you gave, but all this other stuff, what's all that about? Well, perhaps there have been times you've wondered the same thing. What is worship? And why do we worship? Why is it important? Perhaps even more importantly, is there worship that is pleasing to God And is there worship that isn't? Well, we find answers uh, to these questions in the story of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem, often referred to as Palm Sunday, which we find in three of the Gospels in Luke chapter 19, and John chapter 12, and Matthew chapter 21. And I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew 21. We'll be reading that passage in a moment. But let's begin first by looking at the events leading up to the triumphal entry. It is six days before Passover. In less than a week, Jesus will be hanging on the cross. And presently, he is in Bethany, a small village about two miles east of Jerusalem. He is at the home of Simon the leper, having a meal with 12 of his 12 disciples, along with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who Jesus raised from the dead just a few days earlier. And while they are eating, they hear a jar break. And looking over at Jesus, they see Mary kneeling and pouring expensive perfume on Jesus' feet as an act of worship. And folks, if you had been there that day, And we're having a meal with Lazarus who just days before was dead and now live again. I have a feeling you would have done what Mary did and more. Now Judas the thief, who is always concerned about money for selfish reasons, he gets all upset with Mary for her wastefulness, pointing out that Many poor people could have been helped with the proceeds of such an expensive perfume. Now, knowing that Judas has no genuine concern for the poor, he tells him to leave her alone. He says, she has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you. And you can help them anytime you want. But you will not always have me. She did what she could. She poured perfume on my body beforehand to prepare for my burial. Now, on several occasions prior to this event, Jesus had told his disciples that he would soon be put to death. 
But you see, after witnessing the, his power over nature, after witnessing his stunning miracles, his disciples simply refused to believe it. In fact, in one of those occasions on, in Matthew 16, Peter took him aside after he made such a statement. And he, the scriptures say he rebuked Jesus, saying, Jesus, this will never happen to you. And yet in receiving this anointing from Mary, Jesus was not only saying he would soon be put to death, but that the time had actually come. Now meanwhile, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims from all over Israel and beyond, like places like Greece, pilgrims are making their way to Jerusalem to participate in the annual Passover feast. This year, however, the pilgrims have more than the Passover in mind. They are looking forward to meeting this Jesus that they've heard about. The buzz about Jesus is everywhere. Word of his amazing miracles have spread like fire. The feeding of the 5,000, the healing of leprosy, the restoring of sight, the lame made to walk, and of course, just a few days earlier, raising Lazarus from the dead. Well, Jesus and the disciples... They leave Bethany. And as they come to the top of the Mount of Olives, looking west, they can see the city of Jerusalem, the magnificent Jewish temple surrounded by the Kidron Valley. All around the city of Jerusalem, in the surrounding hills of the Kidron Valley, on the side of the Mount of Olives, the pilgrims have set up makeshift tents and parked their four-legged SUVs and RVs because there isn't enough room for all of them to stay in the city. Now, Jesus' decision to ride in, into Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday was significant. It was very significant from a biblical perspective. And there's another number of reasons for that. First of all, Palm Sunday was Lamb Selection Day. Lamb Selection Day was the day that families would select a lamb that they were going to offer as a sacrifice to atone for their sins on Passover. You think about that. You may recall that it was years earlier when John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. On Lamb Selection Day, Jesus not only revealed his kingship to the people of Israel, but he also knew that in a few days he would serve as the sacrificial lamb for us all. Once for all time, but for us all. Furthermore, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, it fulfilled an ancient prophecy given in Daniel, Daniel chapter 9. You look it up sometime. It's a fascinating passage, which predicted that exactly 483 years after the order was given to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem as a consequence of the Babylonian invasion, after that order was given, the anointed one, 
the Messiah, would ride on a colt into Jerusalem 483 years later. And folks, that prophecy, I wish I had time to just lay it all out for you. That prophecy was fulfilled with stunning accuracy to the day. Thirdly, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a colt, he was fulfilling yet another ancient prophecy given by the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah 9, verse 9, we read this, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. When Jesus mounted the colt, he was presenting himself as Israel's promised king. He was saying in no uncertain terms that he was the promised Messiah who was coming to establish God's kingdom, God's reign, God's rule on earth as it is in heaven. Now Jesus rode on a colt, not because budget rent a horse was out of horses and he got downgraded. No, it was military leaders who rode horses in victory celebrations after winning a war. By coming on a colt, Jesus was communicating a different message. Jesus was communicating humility rather than arrogance. He was communicating that his mission was not military in, origin, in, in nature, but it was peace-loving. It was spiritual in nature. Now, as Jesus stands on the top of Mount of Olives, he gives an assignment to two of his disciples. I'm going to ask you to stand with me and read what happens next. Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, teach us now what the true nature of worship is. Teach us now, Lord, the kind of worship that you seek, the kind of worship that pleases you. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the scene depicted here is not all that unusual. It is something that man has done and will probably continue to do in the future. We love to honor our heroes or those in high places of authority. Down through time, war heroes like King Saul and King David 
received stately receptions after military victories. Even today, we're reminded of the thousands who gather at our airports or the streets of our city to get a glimpse of heads of state or our Olympic or sports heroes. But this is a very significant event in the life of Jesus because this is really the first time in his ministry that he allowed others to praise him publicly. You see, prior to this time, when people were healed by Jesus, many times they just wanted to go and tell everybody, which is understandable. And yet time and time again, Jesus would ask them not to tell anyone, saying that his time had not yet come. But on this day, Jesus no longer constrains the praises of the people. He accepts it all, for his time had now come. In fact, in Luke's account, some of the Jewish religious leaders who were in the crowd were some upset because the people were calling Jesus the king who comes in the name of the Lord. They were calling out to him, Hosanna, which means save us, O king. They were implying that he's the Messiah. And so the religious leaders called on Jesus, told him to stop the people from referring to him as king. But Jesus said, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. On this day, Jesus was saying, from this moment on, praise and worship of him was acceptable. In John chapter 4, Jesus said, God is looking for true worshipers, worshipers who worship him in spirit and also in truth. And we're going to see in a moment, a closer look at this event in the life of Jesus will teach us much about the kind of worship that pleases God. The first thing we see here is that God-pleasing worship is God-centered. If you had been there observing the crowds praising Jesus on that day, you would likely have concluded that these people were very sincere. I mean, there were thousands of people cheering and clapping and crying out, Hosanna to the Son of David. But we know that not even a week later, many of them would be crying out with equal passion, crucify him, crucify him. I believe that is why we read in Dr. Luke's account of this event that Jesus wept over the people of Jerusalem as he sat on that colt overseeing that city. Not only because he knew that it wouldn't be too long when the Romans would come and completely destroy the city and the temple. But I believe even more so because he, he knew that their worship was misguided. They cried Hosanna, which means save us, O king. But the savior they wanted was not someone who would save them from their sins, someone who would reconcile them spiritually with God. No, they wanted someone who would deliver them from Roman oppression. 
They weren't worshiping Jesus for who he was, no. They were worshiping Jesus for what they believed Jesus could do for them. Now, to be clear, it's not wrong to come to Jesus for what we believe he can do for us. The problem is that too many people are never interested in more than this. They really aren't interested in knowing Jesus personally. They're really not interested in understanding his plan and purpose for their lives. Jesus wants to be their friend. All they're interested in what Jesus can do for them. They just want Jesus to fix things. And when Jesus doesn't come through for them in the way that they want or in the timeline that they've set out, they get angry at him or they walk away from him. To put it bluntly, their worship is self-centered. It's all about them. It's not about God. Alan Scholes, he writes of a time, he's a pastor, he, he writes of a time that he noticed a couple of new faces in his church. And he went over and introduced himself to them. He asked them if they were new to the area. And they indicated they weren't, but that they were church shopping. The wife said, we've tried most churches around, but we just can't seem to find one that suits us. He asked where they had attended most recently, and she named the church, and then she said, well, there were some things that we liked about it, but we just didn't get very much out of the worship. Now, folks, this couple represents a trend that is all too common among North American Christians. We've become consumers of what we want rather than worshipers of the God who is. We come to a worship service to have our needs met when worship at its core is not about us at all. That's why Jesus was weeping in the midst of this celebration because he knew their worship wasn't about him. It was about what he could do for them. It was about them. In Romans 11, we read, For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. And what this verse teaches is that we were created by the Lord for the glory and the delight of the Lord. Zech Zephaniah tells us that God delights in us. But he delights having a relationship, a friendship with us. And you see, true worship is about God. It's not about me. It's not about getting my needs met. It's not about my preferred style of worship. It's not about my personal tastes. In God-pleasing worship, we gather and we encounter the presence of the living God and we declare His goodness, His righteousness, His glory, His greatness with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so when we come together to worship like this, we come not as consumers the way that we might go to see a play or, or go to see a hockey game. 
We do not come to be entertained. We do not come to rate how good it is or was. The focus isn't on us at all. It is on the Lord. We come to bring an offering of praise and adoration to the Lord. I mean, why do you think we call it a worship service? Worship is an act of service to our God. He is the focus. He's the object of our praise. The pastor is not the center. The worship leader is not the center. The choir, the musicians are not the center. God is the center of worship. So the issue is not, what did I get out of the worship service? No. The issue is, what did he receive from me? What did he receive from me? Now here's the thing. When we make God the focus of our worship, not only will the Lord be blessed, but the Lord being who the Lord is, you know that we're going to be blessed in return. In Psalm 73, the psalmist is troubled. And he talks about a personal struggle that he's having. He notices that the wicked seem to prosper. They seem to be healthy. They seem to be strong. While he is faithfully serving God and he's really struggling. Ever have a week like that? Where you kind of look around and you thought to yourself, I wish I had that person's job. wish I had that person's personality. That person's waistline. That person's hairline. That person's bottom line. <laughs> well, the psalmist goes on to say, he was plagued by these thoughts until he entered the sanctuary of the Lord. He said it was when I consciously entered the presence of God in worship that God whispered to me and gave me his perspective and reminded me that life is a precious gift from his gracious hand and that every human being is just one heartbeat, just one heartbeat from giving an account of their life to a holy God. And were it not for his amazing, ridiculous grace, we would have no hope at all. Ever have that happen to you? Ever leave a worship service saying to yourself, I see things in a new way. The lights have been turned on for me. When you come to worship and exalt the Lord, when you come to focus on Him and to lift Him up, you will find yourself being blessed in return. In Psalm 34, King David talks about the power of worshiping together. He says, oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. People are losing the importance of that these days all around our planet, particularly in North America. 
I can worship God on my own, and you can. But David says, there's something that's powerful when we come together to worship him. Like, for example, remember the time when the wheels were falling off your life? And you know what I found when, when people, when their life is unraveling, the, the, the initial knee-jerk reaction is, I'm going to go off by myself. You know, I'm going to kind of close the door, and I just won't want to talk to anybody. And you know, Satan, who we talked about last week, that's exactly where he wants you. Off by yourself, to have your own pity party, and where he can just, just completely devastate you with his accusations, with his lies. So do you remember a time when the wheels were coming off your life and you contemplated staying home by yourself, but then, kind of last minute, you came to worship with others anyways. And while you were in the sanctuary, perhaps all you could do, because you were under so much pain, was listen. Listen to others pray. To others read scripture. To others testify to the faithfulness of God in their lives. Or sing songs like, great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my Father. And as you took all of this in, hope began to well up inside of you. Not a sentimental feeling, but a raw living hope that emerged from realizing again the truth of who God is. That he makes no mistakes. That he has your best interests at heart in all things, whether you see it right now or not. That he can be trusted. You see, you come to worship God. That's what you came for. But in the process, you got ambushed by God. And you left that service a changed person. Church, we don't worship to get something out of it. But because God is so good, when we worship in spirit and truth, when our focus is Him, He blesses us in return. So first of all, God-pleasing worship is God-centered worship. Secondly, God-pleasing worship comes from the heart. Now, as I just pointed out, even though most of those who were shouting Hosanna to Jesus that day, most of them were worshiping for the wrong reasons, their praise was genuine. I mean, they were not pretending. I mean, no one was in the background handing out $100 bills, you know, or holding a gun to their head that they would line up and praise and worship Jesus. Their praises were spontaneous. They were from the heart. Now again, in John 4, Jesus said, true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. To worship in spirit is to worship from the heart. It is to be real. It is to be honest about where we're at with God. It is to align our spirit with the Spirit of God, confessing anything that needs to be confessed, surrendering anything that needs to be surrendered, and being filled anew with the Spirit. God knows our heart. 
He is grieved when we sing, sing songs thoughtlessly. Do you ever sing a song and at the end realize that you weren't even there? He's grieved when we worship the music. Oh, yeah. When we worship the music more than the one that we're singing it to. The Bible says that man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Now, every once in a while, someone who's exploring the Christian faith, and I love talking to people who are exploring the Christian faith, they ask such good questions. Every once in a while, I'll have one of those kind of people say to me, why does God want our worship? They wonder about a God who needs to be told how great he is over and over again. Like, isn't that a little bit egotistical? Well, first of all, God doesn't need our worship. But he knows that we need to worship him. Because, you see, if we worship anything or anyone other than him, we are going to be really miserable one day. Because the counterfeit gods of this world that people worship... They're temporary. The things that you are worshiping, the people that you are worshiping, folks, they're temporary. And they're going to disappoint you and let you down one day. The psalmist was bang on when he said, truly my soul finds rest in God alone. That's where true contentment and peace is found. And that's why he knows we need to worship him. We need to remind ourselves who he is and of his promises and who we are in him. But having clarified that, let me just give you a response that I read somewhere a number of years ago that has stuck with me that's really helped me to understand God's heart in this. Have you ever noticed that when you've experienced something that just fills you with great joy... It's natural for you to share that experience with other people. Perhaps it was a special date that you were on, or a profound book that you read, or a YouTube clip that you watched, or a hockey game in which the Flames won. I mean, I mean, isn't it natural to tell your friends about how incredible that date was, or how impactful the, the, the book that you read was, or, or to, to watch this hilarious YouTube clip where you're just about killing yourself. You've seen it 37 times, but you're still killing yourself laughing because you get great joy over the fact that your friends are watching the same thing and laughing. It is natural. For you see, people instinctively praise whatever they enjoy. You don't have to tell a young man to praise the virtues of his girlfriend. That comes really natural, at least for the first few days. <laughs> you don't have to tell a hiker to praise the mountains and the countryside, or a golfer to praise a great golf course, or a grandfather to praise, praise her grandchildren, his, his grandchildren. People praise and talk about what they love and enjoy. 
No one forces them to do this. They want to, in fact, many times they just can't wait to share it. In the same way, worshiping God is the spontaneous overflow of love and enjoyment from the heart. The quality of what you experience here is going to be directly proportional to how much God was part of your life during the week. Now think about someone that you really love. Ever find that sometimes when you want to express your love to them, words just don't do it? That sometimes a song or a hug or if you're married, a passionate kiss communicates your feelings far better than words ever could. And church, that is why we praise God through singing. That is why we praise him through various art forms. That's why we raise our hands at times. That's why there are times we just sit down and weep. Because sometimes words are inadequate to describe our love for God or our need of God. Since worship involves delighting in God, it engages our emotions. God gave us emotions so we could worship him with deep feeling. But folks, those emotions have to be genuine. God hates hypocrisy, phoniness, or showmanship in worship. He wants us to worship him in spirit and in truth. To worship in spirit but not in truth is sentimentalism. It's worshiping the music rather than the Lord. And therefore, it's really empty to God because even though it is spirited, it isn't focused on him. It's not focused on the truth of who he is. Which is why at least half of our worship service typically is dedicated to teaching the truth of God's word because it is only as we grow in our knowledge and understanding of who God is and in the truth of his word that we even have a basis upon which to worship God. On the other hand, to worship in truth but not in spirit is ritualism. It is believing, saying, even singing the right things, but losing the wonder, the awe, the delight of who it is we're worshiping. And consequently, just going through the motions, going through the rituals. It's singing the hymn, for example, stand up, stand up for Jesus, and singing the whole thing, sitting down. No passion, no excitement, no enthusiasm. You know, most of us will spontaneously jump three feet, raise our hands in jubilation, hug complete strangers around us when our favorite hockey team wins the game or scores a goal. Given that, I think it's okay to get just a little enthused and emotional in church, don't you? I think it's okay. 
I think it's okay to sing with a little gusto, to raise our hands once in a while, to say amen and clap enthusiastically, not to celebrate any particular person or group of individuals, but to celebrate the victory that we have in Jesus and the proclamation of God's truth, either in word or in song. Can you say amen to that? I mean, when people come to see us, I, I really, you know, when, when, when there's profound truths that are explained through a song or, or through the word of God or whatever, and, 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 and people are, you know, new to the church and they're listening and saying, wow, you know, that, that is really true. That's awesome. That's a great truth. But they look around and they say, oh, gee, it doesn't seem to be these people. <laughs> so church, make no mistake. God-pleasing worship is both accurate and authentic. It is both emotional and truthful. It involves our heads and our hearts. True worship can't be forced. It arises naturally. It just overflows when there's delight in the heart. And then thirdly and finally, God-pleasing worship is daily obedience. In verse 1, Jesus said to two of his disciples, go. And in verse 6, it tells us that they went. They carried out the assignment that he had given him. True worship is not limited to the time period that we call the worship service what we're in right now. It is obeying and living out the truth of God's word and God's call in your life all week. Psalm 105 verse 4 says, we are to seek the Lord's face always. Always. 1 Corinthians 10.31 says, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. While God is blessed when we worship him in worship services like this, whatever we do with all of our hearts for his glory in our homes, in our community, workplace, in and through our church, all of that is also an act of worship to God. When you leave for work on Monday morning or you go to school or to college or you go volunteer in some way, you would be correct in saying to your loved ones, see you later, I'm off to worship. Everything we do that reflects the character and the heart of Jesus, that introduces others to Jesus and advances the mission and the redemptive purposes of Jesus is an act of worship. When we're dependable, when we treat others with respect, when we are diligent and we do our job well and with a Christ-like spirit, when we are humble, when we're ethical, when we're honest in our work, when we honor those in leadership over us, when we are kind and gracious and encouraging to our fellow workers and willing to go the extra mile with a smile, we are worshiping God. When you consciously invite Jesus to do your day with you, and you're listening to his promptings throughout the day, when you are thanking him for his faithfulness, for all of his blessings, and the incredible mountains that surround our beautiful city, 
When you ask him for his guidance and help and you pray for the person that he brings to your mind, you are worshiping the Lord. When you give to the poor or to churches and other ministries that minister to the poor, you are worshiping the Lord. When you do your part to confront and put an end to injustice the way that Jesus did here in verse 12 when he drove out those who were making a huge profit by charging greatly inflated prices to exchange currency and for those that needed to purchase a sacrificial lamb. When you stand up the way that Jesus did to these injustices, you are worshiping God. When you surrender your life to God, when you give your best to God, you're worshiping him. Romans 12, 1 says, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. The heart of true worship is surrender. Nothing brings greater pleasure to God. When you trust him and you give yourself completely to him, when you give your best to God and you hold everything and everyone in your life with an open hand before God, you are worshiping him. You know, Jesus is our greatest example of obedience. He saw the shadow of the cross among the palm branches. And yet he marched steadily forward to that to carry out the assignment that his heavenly father had called him to. The passing hosannas, the palm branches did not deceive him. Neither did the waiting cross, the coming pain and loneliness and humiliation depress or defeat him. For you see, he was able to see beyond all that to resurrection day, the day that he would rise in victory. And friends, when we surrender our lives to the Lord and we sacrificially and obediently do what he calls us to do, when we refuse to allow either the hosannas and the accolades or the accusations and the slander or hardships in life. Get our eyes off Jesus and his call. We will be living vessels of worship to God that will point a lost world to the Jesus that we know and love. I'll close with this. In his book, The Unquenchable Worshipper, Matt Redman tells of a time in the life of their church when the fire that used to characterize their worship had somehow grown cold. He began to notice that people were raiding worship leaders worship teams, and even worship services. And perhaps most disturbing, he sensed the focus of worship 
had shifted from exalting Jesus to either exalting the worship or being critical of it in some way. And so for a season, they decided to strip everything away, to shut down the worship teams, and just to go back to a very simple form of worship. Matt says that first, the meetings were a bit awkward. There were long, awkward pauses of silence, not too much saying. But in time, he says their church rediscovered the heart of true worship. And from that experience, Matt wrote a song that he entitled The Heart of Worship, in which he says, Lord, I'm coming back to the heart of worship. And it's not about the worship team. It's not about the music. It's about you. It's all about you. I'm sorry, Lord, for the thing that I've made it. When in reality, it's all about you. It's about you, dear Jesus. Friends, I trust that you see that worship is all-encompassing. It involves so much more than just waving a few spiritual palm branches at Jesus. It involves so much more than singing a few worship songs in a service like this, as wonderful as that is. True worship involves all of who you are, all of what you say, and all of what you do every moment of your life. Every attitude, every act reflects who we really worship, whether our creator or the created, whether his interests or our own. The Bible teaches that a day is coming when every person on the planet will realize that Jesus is more than worthy of our worship. And at that moment, spontaneously, every knee will bow in worship and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and King. <laughs> blessed, oh, blessed are those who truly worship him now in spirit and in truth. Would you stand with me? I'm going to invite you to open your hands again before the Lord and just ask him, Lord, what are you saying to me? What are you saying to me right now? And then respond to him.
And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and to be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.